This podcast is brought to you by Athene. As the world changes, so does perspective. Is the sun setting on a bull market or is dawn breaking on opportunity? As a leading provider of fixed annuities, Athene was built for times like these. Working together, the future couldn't be brighter. Athene, driven to do more. I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, I sit down with Matt Ridley, author, journalist, businessman, and member of the House of Lords. We talk about his most recent book, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. But first, what's ahead? Will we get a real stimulus package or a fake one? Or none at all? Talk about a new stimulus bill, or perhaps a series of bills, has heated up again not long after President Trump called off negotiations. Keep in mind, there are good stimulus items and harmful ones. Here are the good ones. Payroll tax holiday. The president tried to achieve this by executive order. Congress should do it unambiguously via legislation. For six months or a year, the payroll tax would be suspended for both workers and employers. This would give employees a big immediate pay raise. For employers, it would meaningfully reduce the cost of hiring and keeping people. Someone making $50,000 a year would get a pay raise of almost $4,000 a year. The cost of this worker for an employer would go down about $4,000. Win-win all around. Airlines, they need $25 billion to stay alive until the spring of next year. Let them have it. The industry was doing well before the pandemic. There's no reasonable reason why any carrier should be forced to go bust. Big fat checks for individuals. Critics are right that this money would provide only a one-shot boost for the economy. But such payments are far better than sharply increasing unemployment benefits that would leave tens of millions of people better off not working. How big? $1,200 for adults below a certain income level and $500 for each dependent are the numbers being talked about. Make them bigger. $2,000 for grown-ups and $1,000 for dependents. This larger number would obviate any need for increasing weekly unemployment payments and would also give people big chunks of cash right away to help pay past due bills and buy new products and services. Sharply ease restrictions on how grants and loans to small businesses can be spent. Current regulations don't properly account for costs such as rent. Also, tell the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department to get that Main Street lending program underway. It's supposed to provide cheap loans to smaller businesses. Get it off the ground now. The bad stimulus stuff? We've already touched on the foolishness of paying people not to work. Giving states and cities money to bail out their past financial mismanagement is irresponsible. And no extraneous projects like the $25 million given to the Kennedy Center in a previous stimulus bill. The biggest and best stimulus of all, of course, would be for states to responsibly open up their economies like Florida has done. Many blue states have been notoriously slow. No coincidence that unemployment in the more open states like Florida, Texas, and Georgia are far lower than in restrictive states like New York, New Jersey, and Illinois. And now, my conversation with Matt Ridley. Our special guest today is Matt Ridley. He's an author, journalist, businessman, sits in the House of Lords, superb science writer. He's penned a number of outstanding books, including The Red Queen, Sex and the Evolution of Human Nature, 
the rational optimist, how prosperity evolves, the evolution of everything, how ideas emerge, and his newest book and the focus of our conversation, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. He's a man of courage in the House of Lords. He's probably one of the few there who supported Brexit. He also is in the past before COVID uh, pointed out, actually life has been getting a lot better in the last hundred years, despite the fear of people who are going to hell in a handbasket. So innovation been around the only way humans make progress, the only way we've gotten out of caves. It goes back to even before the invention of farming, which we'll get to uh, shortly. But innovation really might say picked up steam, so to speak, during the Industrial Revolution. But true understanding of innovation has been obscured by myths and misunderstandings that must be uh, surmounted in the post-COVID world if we're really to get back on the path of progress again. So Matt, let us begin. You make a crucial distinction between invention and innovation. Most of us just use those words interchangeably. What is the difference between the two and why we should understand that? Well, in my mind, Steve, invention means coming up with a new gadget or a widget. And innovation means making that gadget available, affordable, reliable in a way that people can actually use it. Uh, it might not be a gadget. It might be a new social practice. It might be a new habit. It might be a new concept. But whatever it is, uh, it's got to be made useful. And that is a surprisingly difficult and large task. Um, that's what I argue anyway. So we've tended to give the original inventor of the idea a lot of credit and the people who turn it into something useful less credit. And I think this is a mistake. There's quite a nice story told by Charles Towns, the inventor of... I was going to ask you about uh, them visiting the Hoover Dam, yes, the beaver exactly. and the uh, rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> and to some extent, that's about the distinction between invention and, and innovation. It's, it's a beaver and a rabbit looking at the Hoover Dam, and the beaver is saying to the rabbit, no, I didn't build it, but it is based on an idea of mine. Uh, and I think that gets the across the point that actually there's a lot of work needs to go into making things practical, reliable, and available for us. And often we don't appreciate just how an important part of innovation that is. Well, let's uh, go to, uh, as you discuss in your book, uh, the steam engine. One, how it happened, but how the most unlikely people can make these advances that uh, in our uh, academic-minded world we wouldn't uh, conceive of. Yeah, I think this is a very important story because uh, it's, in essence, a really crucial invention for the modern world because it's the first time where we use heat to do work. Uh, until steam engines came along, we had energy in the form of work, whether it was wind or waves or water or people or oxen doing uh, actual jobs, and we had energy in the form of heat whether it was wood or coal warming our buildings. But we had no connection between the two types of energy. We didn't even realize that they were both forms of energy. Uh, and then the steam engine comes along and uses heat to, to turn things, to turn a wheel, to pump water out of a coal mine. That was the first instance. And the first working steam engine that really worked was in 1712, and it was built by a man named Thomas Newcomen. We don't even know what he looked like. We know very little about him. We know that he was basically a tinkering engineer and blacksmith working in the tin mines in Cornwall in southwest England. And we don't know whether he had the whole idea himself, seems unlikely, or whether uh, he was relying on some work done by a brilliant French scientist called Denis Papin, who wasn't very good at 
executing his ideas, but was good at, at, at playing with ideas around steam, or a, a, a guy called Captain Savory, uh, who ended up patenting uh, engines f- that use fire to raise water, which meant that Newcomen had to pay royalties to uh, Savory, even though Savory had not actually invented anything. So it's a bit of a mystery how these three people interacted in early 18th century uh, London, if at all. They all ended up buried in London uh, in different parts of the city, and it's possible they never met, and it's possible they collaborated quite a bit. But it, it's it's a wonderfully mysterious beginning to the Industrial Revolution than everything that followed. But note that Newcomen wasn't a man of education, wasn't a man of science. Uh, he may even have been illiterate, we don't know. And yet he made this extraordinary and important breakthrough that uh, transformed the world. And it also uh, led to something that had never happened before, as you point out in your book. It led to the development of railroads, where for the first time ever, we could move faster than an animal. Isn't that extraordinary? I know before 18. 18- 25, I don't think anyone went faster than a galloping horse. Well, possibly if they jumped out of a balloon and died, they might go faster. But but basically, uh, there was no way to go faster than a galloping horse. And the first railways, the pioneer of which was an extraordinary man who came from just a few miles from where I'm sitting today, a man named George Stevenson, uh, again, a man with no education or very little education, uh, but just a brilliant engineer. Um, the first, well, when they first built those railways, he would go before parliamentary committees and they would say to him, please, please don't say that you think it can go 15 miles an hour because that will scare the devil out of the MPs and they'll refuse permission for us to build the thing. 15 miles an hour is ridiculous. You can't possibly promise something like that. And he blurted out at one point that he thought it could go 15 or even 20 miles an hour, at which point there was uproar and the MPs rejected the proposal. This was for the Liverpool to Manchester Railway in the late 1820s. Amazing. And uh, you make the point, too, with these practical people, contrary to what we would think, the science follows the innovation. Okay, it works. How, how did it do it? It led to, I think you said, thermodynamics. That's right. There's a lot of examples of this. Um, after all, we were using vaccination from the early 18th century onwards in America and Britain. Uh, we were using uh, the chemical industry. And by the way, so we didn't understand vaccination until the 20th century. Um, as you say, thermodynamics comes out of the steam engine rather than vice versa. Chemistry comes out of the dye industry rather than vice versa. By the time we get to the 20th century, we are indeed starting with science and creating technology just as often. But even today, actually, sometimes it's science that follows uh, technology. So the fracking revolution in uh, oil and gas is a very good example of a technique that was discovered somewhat by accident in Fort Worth in Texas, which... Uh, then scientists had to explain what was going on rather than the other way around. They didn't say, try this and it'll work. And to some extent, I make the same claim for the gene editing story, the, the, the CRISPR technology, which is a wonderful breakthrough of the last 10 years and which looks like a purely academic innovation. It comes out of Berkeley and MIT. The two are still having a row about who deserves the Nobel Prize and the patents. And they're the ones who say we can use this to make very precise changes in human DNA or indeed plant and animal DNA. But when you look more closely, you find that they borrowed these sequences, these molecular machinery pieces 
from bacteria which were being studied in the yogurt industry to try and understand their resistance to viruses. And it was these uh, guys in the yogurt industry who first zeroed in on this extraordinarily precise DNA reading mechanism in bacteria, which we have now borrowed uh, for practical applications in the human world. So the relationship between science and technology, between science and industry, in my view, is not a linear one where science leads to spin-offs in industry. It's a two-way one. Sometimes science is the seed, sometimes science is the fruit. Right. Um, we think of innovation as good. Obviously, it is. But uh, you also point out inventions don't lead to utopia. Uh, the invention of the printing press not only ginned up the porno industry, but also uh, <laughs> the one who used it best, which led to... Uh, terrible religious wars, Martin Luther. Yeah. Um, Gutenberg is the inventor of printing in Europe, but Luther is the innovator. He's the man who takes advantage of this technology and makes it very widespread. He's the most published author in uh, 16th century Europe. And he's using this new technology to, to spread fury and rage about the Catholic Church. A lot of it justified, but it does lead to religious wars and terrible death toll and a lot of dissent and the, all that goes with the Reformation. So it's not all plain sailing. I mean, I wouldn't want to suggest that we shouldn't have invented printing. But something similar happens with radio in the 1920s, a technology that's wonderful in lots of ways, invented by Marconi. And, but but uh, Mussolini picks it up. Hitler picks up radio. Uh, the Radio plays a surprisingly large part in the rise of the dictators. And I think we're living through something similar with social media today, that, that although it's a fabulous technology for keeping me in touch with what's going on around the world and hearing the voices of lots of different people, I have to admit that it hasn't worked out the way I expected in terms of giving us insights into each other's minds. Quite the reverse. It has polarized us and divided us uh, to a surprising extent. Uh, and I do worry about that. And I think, you know, we have to admit that innovations come with downsides. Um, and that is an example of, of one of them. Again, I wouldn't want to be without social media. I think it's a, it's a godsend to many people. But uh, we have to learn to tame it. And uh, we also tend to think of these uh, breakthroughs as one individual. Let's uh, go to uh, Thomas Edison who uh, exemplifies a couple of things. One is the massive amount of trial and error and failure. And uh, also a lot of people at the same time were working on the light bulb, but uh, he, he took it uh, in a way that the others did not in terms of just sheer sweat and trying to uh, find uh, the, the filaments that would make this thing work. There's a wonderful quote you have from him where Edison says, I've not failed. I found 10,000 ways that won't work. <laughs> Isn't that a great line? 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. Yeah, exactly. You were right to use the word sweat. Perspiration is, is, the, is the point he made. And, and, uh, and, and Edison, I think, more than anyone else, got the point that innovation uh, is a matter of just throwing endless amounts of experimentation at a problem. It's not a question of being the most brilliant person who can figure it out in your head. Uh, it's a matter of trying lots of different things. So when he was perfecting his light bulb, he uh, got his team, and he had a huge team. I mean, he ran a great big factory of innovation um, in New Jersey. And what he got them to do was to 
try 6,000 different types of plant material until he found the perfect thing for making the carbon filament in, in a light bulb. Came um, from Japanese bamboo, right? Japanese bamboo was, was the one that worked. And, and that's what distinguished him from the other light bulb innovators of the time, because there were lots of others. Indeed, on one account, there are 21 different people who deserve credit for the light bulb independently of each other around the same time. But what distinguished Edison from his rivals was that he was prepared to put in the hard work to make a light bulb reliable. A light bulb's not much use if it goes bang after about uh, you know half an hour. Edison's light bulbs were reliable. They, they kept going. Now, why do you get these extraordinary episodes of simultaneous invention? Several Another different the telephone. The telephone. Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray filed a patent on the same afternoon for the telephone. Uh, th there were four different inventors of the thermometer around the same time. And the answer, I think, is most clearly seen if you think about a more modern example, which is the search engine. I don't know if you wanted to get on to talk about that, but I thought I might sure. give uh, that as an I example. I didn't even know they were searching for a search engine. <laughs> well, exactly. In, in the early 1990s, lots of different search engines were developed. If Sergey Brin had never met Larry Page and founded Google, we would not have. Uh, we would have search engines. We wouldn't call them Google, but we we would have search engines. You know, Yahoo and all these others were out there doing it. It's clear in that case that it's not a case of you know some sudden supernatural uh, idea occurring to the same lots of different people at the same time. What's going on uh, is clearly that the the technology has reached the point where it's inevitable that search will come into existence. Once the internet got going, search engines were going to be valuable. And by the way, I think the search engine is the most valuable innovation of my lifetime, not only in terms of the profits it's brought to Google, but also in terms of the value it's brought to me. I think I use a search engine pretty well every day to search for something on the internet. But nobody saw it coming. That's what I find so interesting. If you go back to the 1980s and read the computer science literature, very few people get that search is going to be important. And those that do certainly don't understand that it's going to be lucrative. This is a very good example of the asymmetry of innovation. It looks fantastically obvious in retrospect, but it doesn't look at all obvious in prospect. We, we can't see it coming. Even Bryn and Page didn't realize they were inventing a search engine. They thought they were cataloging the internet. Edison and uh, you mentioned the factory. He, he recognized that it's nice to have an idea, but uh, bringing it to fruition, you have to have a lot of people working on it. One in modern times who does it uh, is, you mentioned Jeff Bezos. He has a large company. How do you keep it innovative? And it gets to the massive amount of trial and error. We mentioned with Edison, 5,000 filaments before he found the right one. Uh, Bezos has that same insight, and uh, he has a rule, the one-person rule, that uh, tries to make sure innovation isn't snuffed out in a large organization. You make the point in your book, large organizations, large companies are not uh, hospitable to innovation. Bezos tries to get around that using sort of the Edison factory method. Yeah. Um, if you look at the history of big companies, they tend not to produce the innovations that transform their industries. So Kodak is taken by surprise by uh, digital photography. Nokia, having dominated the voice uh, era of mobile phones, doesn't see data coming. So it, it tends to be that big companies don't like uh, innovative 
products because they threatened their own monopolies, their vested interests. Uh, and more than that, there's a sort of natural conservatism builds up within big companies so that bureaucratic committees develop which think of reasons why a new idea is not a good idea rather than thinking of what might happen. And so I asked Bezos once, how do you stop Amazon suffering the same problem? And he said that one of the ways is to operate a sort of reverse veto system, whereby if some maverick junior employee has an idea, he can't be outvoted on the way uh, to passing the idea up to senior management. As long as one person on a committee thinks it's a good idea, then it must be considered by people higher up. So in other words, majority rule uh, doesn't help. Uh, He tries to get rid of majority rule and so that minority ideas can reach him as chief executive. I don't know whether that's a significant part of Amazon's success or not, but it is very noticeable, and Bezos himself says this quite often, that they swing and they miss and they swing and they miss and eventually they swing and they hit you know amazon you can tell the story of amazon as a series of failures you know they they made a mess of the dot-com boom bought a lot of companies that turned out to be useless um they went into toys and it didn't work they went into other products and failed and uh, you know again and again there were, there were wrong turnings taken but there were just enough right turnings for them to stay on the road and they eventually ended up being the biggest company in the world it's an extraordinary story and i agree with you i think it's the closest equivalent to, to edison today trial and error this gets to uh, if you don't allow trial and error failure uh, you get stagnation and you cite nuclear energy where innovation was not allowed to take place. And if innovation had been allowed to take place, you never would have happened what happened in Japan with that tsunami. Those nuclear plants would have been retired a long time ago because uh, innovation would have superseded it. So going back to the 50s, 60s, why didn't the industry go for, say, molten salt technology or something that wouldn't get hung up on spent fuel rods? What, what, What happened with nuclear energy just killed it from evolving into something that uh, could have been cheap and very useful today. Yeah, I, I, it, it's a really interesting question, this, because the nuclear industry has, as you say, been cut off from the lifeblood of innovation, which is trial and error. It's not allowed to make errors. Um, obviously, we don't want it making big errors, you know, nuclear meltdowns or anything, but but you, it can't change its mind. The, the licensing process for building a, a nuclear reactor is so enormously expensive, onerous, and time-consuming, and so specific to the technology that you can't present the regulator with a different technology. Uh, It just wouldn't know what to do, uh, and it would cost you even more and take you even longer to get a decision out of them. And then when you get the decision, the decision is, yes, you can build this, but only if every screw and nut and bolt is specified in advance. Well, that isn't how the world works. The world works through changing our mind, bringing in new good ideas halfway through the process, etc. So I think that form of regulation is what has stifled nuclear development. As you say, molten salt reactors look like a much better bet. This is where the fuel is molten. And of course, being liquid, that means you don't get the problem of spent fuel accumulating in the wrong place. And uh, that means that you don't effectively need um, pressurized water as a coolant, which is a 
dangerous stuff, pressurized water, because at the drop of the hat, it'll turn to vapor, it'll turn to steam. So um, the pressurized water reactor, the one we've ended up with, is not the most inherently safe design. The US uh, military got as far as sketching a molten salt reactor for an airplane. The idea was that the Navy had the pressurized water reactor, which was the simplest and quickest way to go at the time. But the US Air Force, jealous of the Navy, wanted to have its own nuclear reactor program. And it said, let's go with uh, molten salt. And they got as far as building some prototypes. And then, of course, missiles came along, and there was no need to have bombers that could fly vast long distances forever on limited fuel. Uh, so the, the program was scrapped. It's currently being revived in, of all places, Canada. Canada has a nuclear regulator that is agnostic about techniques. It applies a principles-based, risk-informed regulatory system. So instead of saying, I want to check every nut and bolt of your reactor, it says, look, if you can prove to me that your reactor is safe in the following ways, then we don't really mind how you build it. Uh, in detail. And that means that a new design and new technology can get a hearing uh, and can possibly get built. And there are four or five different companies now trying to do that in Canada. And indeed, the US nuclear regulator is now trying to learn to reinvent itself along the Canadian line. So we may be at the brink of a new, what's called generation four nuclear revolution. And ultimately, uh, fusion you think uh, the time may come where a bottle of water can power New York City? <laughs> well, obviously, for the last 50 years, fusion has been 50 years away, and it's still 50 years away. <laughs> and that feels like a futile quest. Uh, and in the hands of the public sector, it is a futile quest, because the projects are designed in with 50-year timelines in mind, essentially. You know, there's, there's no sort of haste about them. But in recent years, in the last 10, 15 years, high-temperature superconductors have come along, made of interesting alloys. When I say high temperatures, I mean 50 degrees above absolute zero, not high by your and my standards, but they're much higher than superconductors were before, much easier to reach. And that enables us to think about different, smaller, and neater designs for fusion plasma uh, confinement with a so-called spherical tokamak rather than a donut-shaped uh, confinement. And that's much easier to engineer and to make stable. And there are now four or five different private companies on the quest to produce the first commercial fusion reactor. It would produce enormous quantities of energy effectively from water, Basically, you're fusing uh, hydrogen isotopes to, to create helium. And uh, in, in doing so, it would produce extremely little radioactivity. There's a small amount of tritium, which is very short-lived, and, and it's far, far less than, than with fission reactors. There's no possibility of meltdown or explosion. Uh, I mean, you, know, you can have conventional explosions and things, but, but nothing serious. If it were to work, uh, it really would transform the world. We would then have limitless or very nearly limitless energy, um, hopefully at, at low cost. But it's crucial that we don't regulate it out of existence at its birth. And that's something that I think is very important, that we design the regulatory system to allow it to learn, evolve, and drive down its price as it comes into existence. 
there's sort of a myth of government being an innovator. Oh, they invented DARPA. They did this. They did that. But uh, you deal with that in the book. If anything, government has been an inhibitor. So contrast in terms of a wonderful story about government versus people from the most unlikely places, the Wright brothers versus Samuel Langley. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories in the book. And it's, of course, very well known, but, uh, but it's worth revisiting because it does, as you say, teach some very important lessons. Samuel Langley was an astronomer. He was the head of the Smithsonian Institution. He was very well connected. He knew everybody. And he got an enormous government grant to develop the first aeroplane. And everybody thought he was the man to back. But he his approach was to go off in secret and come up with the perfect design himself. And then to unveil the complete machine, having got all the different bits together without really testing them in advance. And uh, in December 1903, he launched it off the top of a uh, houseboat in the Potomac. It went, I can't remember whether it was 20 yards or 20 feet, but it crashed straight into the river and was a terrible flop and a disaster. What he'd done wrong was that he'd, he'd not done trial and error along the way, he'd not made it an incremental process, and he'd not consulted lots of other people. Ten days later, on an island off North Carolina at Kitty Hawk, Orville and Wilbur Wright get it right, as it were. And um, they had done everything right, because what they'd done was lots of experiments. They'd been experimenting for years with gliders, so as to get the exact curvature of the wing right, so as to work out how to steer. Nobody knew how you steer in the air. So as to work out all the structures and uh, ratios and uh, weights and so on. Uh, and they'd only developed the engine at the end, but even then developing the shape of the propeller had been a, a huge collaborative exercise. They'd drawn on the expertise of glider builders all around the world and people who studied birds in flight and so on. And there was this wonderful guy called Octave Chanute who lived in Chicago, who was a kind of node in a network about flight. He was corresponding with people all over the world uh, about how you might develop flying machines. He actually collaborated with the Wright brothers and he came to uh, Kitty Hawk to help them. So they got the point that it was a collaborative exercise. One of the neat things that happened next was that nobody believed them. Uh, I mean, I quote in the book, I think it's Scientific American, basically saying, look, these rumors about a couple of bicycle mechanics in Ohio who are now flying around in the air for an hour at a time, if that were true, do you not think we would know about it and have reported on it. It can't possibly be true. Well, it was true. It, by, that, by the time they wrote that, the, the Wright brothers could easily stay aloft for an hour at a time. They were doing so in Dayton, Ohio, which is hardly Timbuktu, um, but Scientific American hadn't bothered to go and look because it, it didn't rate a couple of bicycle mechanics. It's a lovely story. Governments uh, also, uh, sadly, can be blockers. A uh, couple of examples, India, fiercely resisted. The Green Revolution, the bureaucracy initially, which saved tens of millions of lives. And in the U.S., walk us through how our government blocked cellular technology. Yeah, this is a fascinating story. Thomas Hazlitt has written about this. Back in the 1940s, some various people had the idea that you didn't have to have 
a radio telephone talk directly to another radio telephone, it could talk to the nearest base station, which could then relay the message to the nearest base station to the guy who had the other station. That's the basic cellular concept. And if you did that, you would be able to have far more mobile phones than, than you would by the other means, and they wouldn't have to have such big batteries and so on. So the concept was there. What was lacking was a piece of real estate on the electromagnetic spectrum. In other words, give cellular a slot to, to develop. Um, but would they do that? Would the um, Federal Communication Commission do this? No, it was being lobbied by the television companies saying, no, 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 we need all the spectrum. Well, well you're not using it. No, no, but we might need it in future. Uh, so literally, it's not until the 80s that uh, the government starts to free up spectrum and make it available for cellular telephony. Now, why aren't the, the radio communication companies, the, you know, the people who are making walkie-talkies for oil rigs and so on, why aren't they agitating for cellular? Because they've got a very cosy little monopoly going without cellular. You know, they're threatened by the idea of this, this thing getting much bigger and more widespread. So if the US had pushed harder sooner, cellular would have taken off much sooner. You can then ask the question, why didn't it happen in other parts of the world? Because the process was even more nationalized in most other parts of the world. Most of the rest of the world all communication was government-owned. It was the postal companies or the, the national telephone companies, and they are notoriously bad at innovation. Well, change, whether it's a government or a special interests, often meets resistance. You have some uh, wonderful stories. Tell us about uh, coffee, which was fiercely resisted. Yeah. So when you know when you hear about uh, you know friends of the earth trying to stop fracking or Greenpeace trying to stop genetically modified crops, you, you tend to think that this is a modern thing, but it isn't. It goes way back. This practice of people getting uh, ideologically hotted up against a new technology. And coffee is the most extraordinary example of this. Coffee comes into the Middle East and Western Europe uh, in the 1500s, and everywhere it is resisted. And it's resisted for two main reasons. One, because there's a rival industry, the wine and beer industry, which doesn't like people meeting up to drink coffee. And so they, they employ medics. There's, a, there's an example I quote in the book of, of doctors from, I think, Marseille University or Toulouse or somewhere, who, who are commissioned to write a pamphlet saying, this coffee thing is bad for the kidneys, bad for the liver, it'll kill you quicker than anything, you know, da, 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 um, which is all specious and made up, but it's, it's to defend the special interests of the wine and beer industry. But at the same time, you've got rulers, kings and sultans and people saying, we want to ban coffee. Why do they want to ban coffee? Because basically, coffee is drunk in coffee houses, and people get a bit animated when they have coffee, and they often do a lot of talking in coffee houses. And one of the things they talk about is whether the king is doing a good job. So Charles II of England, when he banned coffee houses in 1672, he was very explicit about this. He put out a pamphlet saying, uh, the reason I want to ban coffee houses is because people are telling lies in them. It's basically, he's trying to stop fake news, or, as he sees it, <laughs> fake news. But even now, uh, vaping, electronic cigarettes. In your country, health authorities say, this is great. It's far less harmful than cigarettes. It will save thousands of lives if you vape rather than smoke. In this country, they're trying to kill vaping as if it's equivalent to uh, tobacco. And no surprise, the tobacco industry is keenly interested in 
having these things in effect regulated out of existence. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, this is a very interesting development invented in China uh, around 20 years ago by a guy trying to get off cigarette smoking, having seen his father die of lung cancer. I've met him. He's called Hon Lick. And uh, he came up with the modern electronic cigarette. And because it doesn't have smoke coming out of it, it has very few of the carcinogenic chemicals that, uh, that smoke does. Um, it's got nicotine, but nicotine isn't particularly dangerous in itself. It's, it's the other stuff that comes with it that kills you. So all the evidence points to vaping of nicotine e-cigarettes being 90 to 95% safer than smoking. But everywhere... The anti-smoking lobby saw this as an attempt to sort of keep smoking going, um, keep nicotine addiction going, and you know maybe even a gateway to smoking for young people. Uh, so even they, though, by the way, in the U.S., for all the concern about teenagers vaping, teenage smoking has declined sharply in the last fifteen years. Right, exactly, and partly because of, of vaping. Now, in the U.K. Luckily, um, one person called David Halpern, who was advising David Cameron, the Prime Minister at the time in, in 2010, got to him before the um, health lobby did and said, please don't ban this stuff. Let's see if we can, you know, if it catches on, it might drive down smoking. As a result, Britain has a huge vaping community, has very low smoking rates now, uh, fast falling, uh, very low lung cancer rates compared with other European countries. So it's, it's on the whole a good outcome. But we have passed regulation to ensure product safety. So it is, it, we do regulate vaping products so that people don't adulterate them uh, and, and that kind of thing. Whereas in the US, you've gone down the same route you went down with alcohol in 1920, which is prohibition. And of course, what that led to was a black market. And the same thing has happened with vaping. You've got a black market in much more dangerous vaping products, including ones designed for for drugs and this uh, vitamin E acetate oil, which was used as a solvent for uh, THC from cannabis, uh, and which turns out to be lethal and has indeed killed people. So the very act of being more prohibitive rather than regulating for safety has actually made it a more dangerous product. And a couple of quick examples of how regulation gets in the way, uh, the drone. Yeah. Now, I think this is a really nice, nice point that was made to me by John Chisholm. We, we've regulated drones piecemeal by saying, right, okay, no more than 500 feet up, um, not out of sight, no bigger than a certain size, um, et cetera, et cetera. We've come up with all these rules. And each of these rules is based on a sort of incident that happened and that caused a, a dangerous thing. All you need do, though, particularly under a good old-fashioned uh, Anglo-Saxon common law system, is introduce a law that says anyone who owns a drone is responsible for any harm that it does and can be punished for doing that harm, to, whether to property or to people. And it's up to you to work out how to make sure it doesn't do harm. And actually, under that kind of law, you would have been able to prosecute any and every one of these cases without bringing in all these specific regulations, which have, to some extent, hindered the development of peaceful and useful uses of drones. Uh, other things that stand in the way, patents. Uh, we think, oh, patents, good. But they're now being used to uh, block innovation or competition. Yeah, no, indeed. And patent trolls, uh, and and you get so-called patent thickets developing, whereby somebody uh, is trying to develop a new 
technology and finds that all the routes to success require buying a license of patent holders of existing technologies, and that makes it harder and harder for him. And, and the evidence suggests that strengthening patents doesn't increase innovation rates and weakening patent systems doesn't decrease innovation rates. Moreover, when a patent expires, you tend to get a burst of innovation. So I think the evidence suggests that patents as they are currently practiced are too restrictive, uh, too lucrative to the owners, and too uh, lengthy in terms of the time that, that they last for. So I think we need to, to rethink our obsession with patents. And we should reward people with prizes instead of patents, where they, they don't get to monopolize the profits. Which from uh, has a rich history of uh, prizes. Yep, it does. In terms of uh, stimulating innovation. So uh, talking about what we need to do to encourage innovation, you point out that surprisingly the most innovative area in the earth today, although it's changing because of the regime, is China that uh, at least until Xi Jinping came along, the deal was you could do anything you want as long as you didn't uh, get in the crosshairs of the Communist Party. So you didn't uh, you had this permissionless uh, society and payment systems and the like. China's light years ahead of the rest of the world. Right. Um, people are very surprised when I describe Chinese entrepreneurs as free. Uh, and of course, politically, they're not at all free. But they have had a system in the last couple of decades, where uh, if you want to set up a new business or build a new device, you have to get a lot less bureaucratic license than you would do in the United States or Europe. You're essentially free to, to try and get on with it. You get very quick decisions out of what government there is. There aren't lots of layers of, of consultations to, to go through. Uh, economically, you're freer than in the West. And that's why China's been so innovative. Now, as you say, I think that is changing under Xi. I don't know the Chinese system that well, but it looks to me like even economic freedom is being stifled under this current regime. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on China long-term being the main innovator in the world. And you point out in China, the Song dynasty or a thousand years ago is innovative than the Ming dynasty plus an invasion killed that. Xi Jinping should maybe go on the way of the Ming dynasty. Yep. But what uh, with COVID, COVID has uh, underscored what happens when you free up this permission-encrusted system we have. We've discovered we're not very innovative on medicines and vaccines. Where do we go from here? What uh, should we have learned? What have we learned because of the exigencies of the crisis? And can we make these uh, changes of liberating the process of innovation, free it up and get our innovative mojo back again, so to speak? I hope so. Uh, I think it's vital that we do, because as you say, we've entered this pandemic lamentably unprepared in terms of vaccine development, uh, DNA diagnostic development, etc. It's not that the technology is not ready, it's that we've not let it develop because we've made it very difficult to get permissions to develop these things. Again, it's not that the government says no to a new vaccine or a new diagnostic device. It's just that it takes a very long time to say yes. And it's very expensive. And so as a result, an ambitious entrepreneur goes off and develops a video game instead because he doesn't have to get permission from anyone to do that. So we've proved in the last few months that we can approve new ventilators, new medical devices very quickly and that we can rush vaccines through clinical trials quite quickly. Well, if we can do that in wartime, if I could use that expression, then why can't we do it in peacetime too? 
And I hope that is the lesson that regulators all around the world are learning uh, from this pandemic. And uh, you, you call yourself the rational optimist. It took a real hit with the response to COVID and some of the disastrous things we did. And looking out ahead, what's your prognosis? Are we going to get it back and get on the right path again? I hope so. And I think so. Um, every year since I published The Rational Optimist in 2010, people have said to me, well, you can't be a rational optimist now. Look at what's happening in Ukraine. Look at what's happening in Syria. Look at what's happening in the Eurozone. You know, look at what's happening with the financial crisis. And now, of course, look at what's happening with the pandemic. Uh, and yes, the pandemic is a serious issue and it has blown the world economy off course. And yes, you know, it is possible that we are living through the death throes of liberal democracy and Western civilization, and um, a rational optimist will look pretty stupid. But uh, I personally think that the processes of exchange and specialization and innovation that produce prosperity are pretty hard to crush. Uh, and I think uh, my grandchildren and uh, yours will be better off than we are today. Terrific. Matt, thank you very much and uh, continue your good work. And thank you uh, for spending this time with us. Steve, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you again for, for, for having me on your show. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.